Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I want to ask you to grab your Bible and open up to Mark chapter 7. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and it's been incredibly rich, incredibly powerful. I I pray that it's been as encouraging uh, for you as it has been for me, and and uh, and selfishly, I pray it's has been as convicting as it was as it as it has been for me as it is for you. But uh, it has been an incredible book, and we are turning a a corner to a transitional narrative here. And it's the story that you'll remember, no doubt. It's a showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. Let's pick it up in chapter seven, verse one. We'll read through verse twenty-three. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Verse 17, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. 
For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things, proceed from within and defile the man. Perhaps when you were little, you played the telephone game. You'd start with somebody telling a story, you whisper it in the ear of the person next to you, you go around a circle and see what the story comes out on the other end. After a story has been told and retold enough times, it rarely resembles the original story. I remember playing, playing a game we used to call pictures, and um, you would start with a stack of papers, and if you had a group, you would have a circle, and everybody in the group would start with a stack of papers, and, and uh, the first person would, uh, uh, you would, you would take the stack of papers, and you would draw a picture, and then you would take that picture, and, and, or you'd take the whole stack and pass it to the person next, next to you, and that person would look at your picture and write, write a story in words, and then put the picture at the back so you couldn't see the picture, and they'd pass it to the next person, and they'd read the story, and then draw a picture portraying that story, and you just go all the way around the circle until you end up with a picture or a story at the end that's completely unlike what it, what it started and how it began. And of course, the humor in that and the entertainment is that is how bizarre the story gets uh, compared to the original. It's interesting when I talk to unbelievers, people outside the church, outside of Christ, one of the number one criticisms against the gospel or against the church or against Christ is the fact that how could you really know what's true? You religious people are constantly fouling things up. You're constantly changing things, and it's never the original. You never have like a real just Here's true religion. Here's true worship of this Lord, this so-called Lord that you pretend to worship. And that's how one of the most common accusations typically goes. And let's just be honest. There's some plausibility of that accusation. Man is relentlessly an idolater. There is a constant threat, is there not, when... We profess to worship God for that worship to become impure and for it to become tainted and for it to become something that it originally ought not to have been. Our tendency toward idolatry is, is, it goes back to our fallen nature. This is just who we are by nature. Uh, we are born that way. We are born fallen and flawed and corrupt. Let me begin by introducing this topic with Psalm 50 verse 21. You remember this psalm? It's a, it's a confrontation of Israel. Uh, the, the psalmist, it's written by Asaph, and he's, he's pointing out that the nation has a really an incredible access to divine revelation. They have the Old Testament scriptures. They have, uh, at least this generation had the entirety of the Torah, and already quite a bit of the wisdom literature. And they are being rebuked for how they're handling the revelation that they do have. They are not dealing with it faithfully. He's rebuking them for their sacrifices and their, their offerings. They're going through externally with a lot that God has asked them to do. But the problem is, is that they are not obeying the Lord from their heart. Let's pick it up in verse 16. After rebuking them for, not, it's not, not, nothing's wrong, verse 8, with their sacrifices... 
He's just not accepting them because of these issues. Pick it up in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? You hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and when you associate, you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now that stanza is rich. Because in the confrontation of how they have perverted the worship of the living God, whose scriptures they actually have, whose scriptures they regularly read, God rebukes them because they're corrupt internally. And what they're doing is, even with access to scripture, they are starting to create God in their image. Verse 21 says, you thought I was just like you. And they start to create God and they start to imagine God in their own image. And now their obedience externally to the commands of God is just worthless. They're not worshiping God from the heart. Idolatry creeps into and ruins worship wherever the revelation of God does not prevail. The prophet Isaiah describes such Worship, when it describes the folly of idolatry, in Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, we won't read this whole section, but if you wanted to read this whole section, starting in verse 9 through 20 of Isaiah 44, it describes the absolute absurdity and folly of an idolater and how much work someone will go to to create an idol. And it describes a lot of work and a lot of hard effort. In, in, in fact, it even describes subsidizing uh, a blacksmith to create a unique cutting tool and even um, some sort of green thumb or arborist to grow a particular tree that's going to be the exact wood that this man wants. And then he carves out this shape and he uses these tools to create the perfect idol. And whatever wood he has left over after creating his idol, he burns to bake bread. And Isaiah says, do you see the folly of such idolatry? Verse 18 says, They do not know, nor do they understand, for he is smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. And then I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. And we, we read that, we think, you blockhead, it's so obvious. But he does not have the logic. His, his reasoning has been darkened so that he cannot conclude, here's my idol, here's my block of wood, I'm worshiping the same thing. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And this is the darkest form of idolatry where the idolater cannot see how self-deceived he really is. When we think about idolatry, this is a very, seems like an extreme form of idolatry. You think, wow, that's, that's pretty extreme to just create this little image. And we know you can't make an image of God. He's incomparable. There's no image that correlates to God. This is really, really bad. But you know, in equipping hour, Jeremy just mentioned 
there's really no difference between the heart of man in Papua New Guinea and the heart of man in an American church. There's no difference. But idolatry in the American church would just look a little bit more subtle. It might not look like animism. It might not look like the syncretism of two worldviews that are just completely um, irreconcilable and disharmonious. It, it, it actually just, all it takes is the subtle introduction of human decrees and human traditions into the worship of the living God. In our story, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and it's interesting how similar the core of the problem is between that kind of idolatry of creating God in our image or of carving an image out of a block of wood and this of the Pharisees. It looks much different on the outside, but fundamentally, it is the same. In case you missed it, I want to point out a contrast that's going to become very obvious as we dive into this text. Notice in verse 8, well, back in Mark chapter 7, in Mark 7 verse 8, notice that Jesus himself says to the Pharisees, and you can probably, it's probably appropriate to have a sanctified imagination here of Jesus pointing the finger lovingly saying, just consider this. Because this is a very sober confrontation. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And now look at the similar language in verse 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep to your tradition. And look at the similar language in verse 13. Invalidating the word of God by your tradition. I mean, he uses three verbs here of how they're treating God's word. Namely, neglect, verse 8, setting it aside, verse 9, and invalidating in verse 13. Wow. This is the most notable, most visible religion of the day, and it is supposedly built on God's word. And Jesus comes along and says, neglecting the commandment of God, setting aside the commandment of God, invalidating the word of God. What are they doing? Holding to the tradition of men, keeping your tradition, and holding on to your tradition, verse 13, which you've handed down. This is idolatry in a religious form. If you want to title this morning, I titled this, The Heart of Religious Corruption is Misunderstanding the Heart's Corruption. As we look at this passage, it's going to take us a couple of weeks because um, this is just a theologically loaded passage. Even the way Mark tells the story, he really slows down the action sequence and he gives us a lot of background to make sense of this pretty, pretty short confrontation. And so... Um, in order to be able to grab all of that and be able to meditate on all that, we're, gonna, we're really going to focus on verses 1 to 13 this time, and we'll have to pick, it up, pick up the rest later. But in verses 1 to 13, Jesus has a showdown with the religious leaders, namely, in verse 1, this, the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's showing them how their religion is so corrupt, primarily because it justifies heart disobedience. And then when we get to verses 14 to 23, we're going to see how this really is a religion that ignores the heart's defilement. But uh, that'll be for a, another day. So 
In verses 1 to 13, this is how human religion justifies hearts, uh, the heart's disobedience. This is how you have a religious form that is able to get around the word of God. This is how uh, religion creates an avenue to replace God and put man back on the throne um, as, as a false religion. And so here's what happens in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gather around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Now, these are the heavy hitters. These are, these are coming from the capital. These are the ones who are, they're hearing. There's a, there's a guy teaching. He's teaching in a way that's exposing what we teach. Uh, there's a conflict here. So they show up. And verse 2, specifically, they had seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, unwashed. And it's important. And this word unwashed just you know, means defiled or common. And so the issue here is particularly hand-washing. You think, what's the big deal about hand-washing? Well, for the Jews, it was a big deal. And then in the Mishnah, there's an entire tractate named Yadayim, which means hands. And um, it's a whole tractate just about, um, it's the traditions for hand-washing. And Mark, writing to uh, probably a much more Gentile audience than, than especially Matthew or John, he explains this to his Gentile readership, He explains in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Now, this is an interesting verse, and it really starts in verse 3 and goes all the way through verse 4, where there's this kind of parenthetical comment that Mark gives so that we can make sense of this showdown. It's an interesting showdown because traditions are not matching up. Uh, The practice of Jesus' disciples is at odds with the practice of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so, as he explains this, he says that the Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they carefully wash their hands. Now, I'm I'm reading the um, NAS, and uh, the NAS translation. And so, if you are, you'll notice that there's a footnote that says, with the fist. And uh, literally, it's it's the word for a fist. And... um, there's a debate about that. Now, when I first started diving into that, I thought, oh, okay, that's probably some sort of term like, you know, if you make a fist, you're, you're getting every wrinkle exposed so you can get the dirt out of every wrinkle. That's kind of what I was expecting. I didn't find that anywhere, so that was pure speculation. So we can just ignore that outright. But what I did find was interesting. There are examples in Jewish literature where there's debates about how much water is necessary to qualify for it to be an actual purification of the hand or the hands. In uh, one passage, it says to render the hands clean, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of translation here. It was, the Mishnah uses the word a log, and it's a, it's a liquid measure. Um, uh, a log would be um, um, uh, basically uh, a, quarter, a quarter log would be about half of a cup. So a quarter log, if you think a half of cup of our measurement, so four liquid ounces, is a quarter log. So a quarter log of water is required to render the hand clean for one and also for two. Now, if you have more than two people, if you have three or four people, then a half log is to be used. And if you have five and ten and even a hundred, then you've got to use an entire log, which would be like a massive basin. Um, so you can, just, you can see that there's incremental measurements of how much water is required to qualify one to be able to actually ceremonially clean your hands after being at the marketplace before you eat. So a quarter log being 
four ounces, well, that'd be about the size of a, a fist, about, you know, a handful. Or perhaps to submerge your fist. And so, you know, either one would be pretty, pretty reasonable assumption because we don't have a, a, any direct parallel to that um, washing with the fist reference. But Mark's explaining that's the tradition and that's what's required. And they have four chapters on hand washing in the Mishnah. Now, I'm going to read them for you right here. Just kidding. I'm not going to read them. (laughs) Mark explains it and summarizes what we need in verse 4. That's just what they do. And that's the tradition of the elders. And that tradition is observed. And we're about to see that tradition being bound on the conscience of the disciples. But he continues, he says, when they would come from the marketplace, that's when they would do this washing with the fist, probably the four-ounce measurement required for each person. And then it starts to become exponentially bigger basins the more people who have to wash their hands. They do not eat, verse 4b, unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And boy, is that not the case. Between the tractate Yadaim and um, Nedarim, there is a lot of descriptions about um, the vows and cleansing and all of the customs that go into how you would be ceremonially pure uh, with all that goes into normal everyday life. And so Mark doesn't even have to extrapolate on the many other things. And in fact, we're going to see Jesus say that you do many such things as this in verse 13. We'll get to that in a second. So I don't even need to comment right here. We'll, we'll pick that up at the end. All it's obvious to say is, this is a tradition. It's a traditional interpretation. It's a traditional practice. It's something that the Jews have said, this is how you do it. And it's, it's how we have chosen to obey the scripture. And so verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, why do your Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And it's the issue here is, of course, uncleanliness. And the issue is, why do the disciples not practice this this practice? Why don't they do this? Um, One resource said that those who come from the market, they don't allow, this is the Jews, they don't allow rinsing. It has to be immersion. You have to immerse your hand in the water. Um, it has to be spring water, river water, or rainwater. And the concern is, is that you could have contracted from the marketplace a higher degree of impurity through contact with another person. And that's exactly what's behind the Pharisees' question in verse 5. They're saying, look, we're watching your disciples, and they're not doing that. They're, they're actually eating bread with unclean hands. They are impure. What's up with that? That is so ungodly, so impious, such a blatant disregard for religion, devotion to Yahweh. Verse 6, he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Wow, that's that's a bold statement, and it's, a loving statement. And it's a true statement. And even the word rightly could be skillfully or well. Well did Isaiah speak of you. Skillfully did Isaiah prophesy of you. 
And it's just very penetrating because Jesus takes the prophecy of Isaiah and he points it directly at the Pharisees because the Pharisees are smack dab in the middle of the crosshairs of this prophecy. If I could take a brief brief time out from Mark for a second. You know, the parallel in Matthew has one interesting point that I think is also worth mentioning. Uh, And this is not necessarily Mark's point, and we don't need this point to make sense of Mark's point, but I do want to show you something from Matthew 15 for a second. Here's one one section that's not not repeated and that Mark doesn't uh, record, but in in Matthew 15, verses 12 to 14, There's a statement privately between Jesus and his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees. And let me just read this to you. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man both will fall into a pit you know the disciples are sitting there and they're hearing no doubt they're hearing what we just read in 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 mark 7 verse 6 rightly did isaiah prophesy of you you hypocrites and the disciples are cringing uh, whoa uh, hey jesus uh, now that we're alone did you know that was really offensive to them And they're just concerned. They're concerned because they're like, this is majorly offensive. You're stepping on toes, Jesus. And of course, Jesus knows that. He's not unaware. But he's, he's glad to do so in love. He's glad to do so because he, he loves his children, and he loves his enemies, and he wants them to see that their religion is false. And so he says, Isaiah was skillful when he prophesied about you in your hypocrisy. And you directly fulfilled this prophecy. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but in their heart, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. And I know, you know, hopefully, hopefully you're ready for this. There's an Old Testament quote. <laughs> And not all of them, you know, we need to take a huge time out for. This one's a big one. And what I want to do is I want to show you this in context. Let's go back just for a moment. Let's go back and look at where Jesus is reading as he's quoting this prophecy. And it's, it's in the section of Isaiah. It's specifically in Isaiah 29. But let's go back to Isaiah 28. Let me show you something that's pretty, um, pretty helpful. Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 is an important beginning to a a rich section in Isaiah's prophecy. You might say this is uh, the beginning of the section. It's kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of Matthew 23, where Jesus gives seven woes to the Pharisees and to the religious establishment of Judaism. Well, here Isaiah is giving six woes to the nation in their apostasy. Uh, Notice verse 1 of chapter 28. Woe to the proud the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And this is the first of six woes. Chapter 28, verse 1, woe. Chapter 29, 1, woe. Verse 15, woe. That's number three. Number four is in chapter 30, verse 1, woe to the rebellious children. 
Chapter 31, verse 1. Number 5, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And then chapter 33, verse 1, woe to you, O destroyer. There's your six woes. Isaiah is in the middle of this massive section that goes all the way through chapter 34, really, of woes to the nation in unbelief. In chapter 28, this is a description of woe to the nation because they are not paying attention to God's word. In verse 9 of 28, Isaiah says, To whom would God teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from the milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. What's he talking about here? He's talking about rudimentary reading. He's talking about learning literacy. He's talking about speaking truth and interpreting the message to children, infants, babes. This is, um, you know, like what it would be, the the level of teaching that we would give to our pre-K class. Just the absolute fundamentals, the bare minimum that they could possibly grasp. And it says in verse 11, Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, Here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. And so, because they're not listening to the word of God... Their listening to the word of God is going to be, it's going to degenerate to the fundamental rudimentary listening of a, of a childlike level, not like childlike faith. It's, this is a rebuke of, the, they're not going to get anything more than a child would get out of it. Order on order, verse 13, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken and snared captive. And so then he calls those who are not listening to God's word, who are getting less and less of it, he's calling them scoffers in verse 14. They're going to stumble over the stumbling stone, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, in verse 16. That's the context. Now, the passage that Jesus is quoting is in the second woe, chapter 29. In 29 verse 1, it says, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Ariel is just a term that means the Lion of God. And that's, he's calling the, the city of Jerusalem the Lion of God. And he's actually pronouncing woe now on Jerusalem. This is a condemnation, a rebuke um, to Jerusalem. And it's talking about how enemies are going to encircle uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be brought low. They're going to be brought to um, a point of death. They're going to be destitute. They're going to be without speech. They're going to be just exhausted. They're going to be lying in the dust. God's going to bring them low. Verse 5, The multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, and the multitude of ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly, From the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempests and the flame of a consuming fire, and the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her, will be like a dream, a vision of the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating. But when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a a thirsty man dreams, behold, he is drinking. But when he awakens, behold, he is faint. And his thirst is not quenched. Thus, the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. He's picturing the enemies of Jerusalem. 
Being like the hungry man who dreams about eating a steak, wakes up, empty, still, uh, empty stomach, still there, still hunger pains, and it's just more and more and more. I'm trying to consume more and more and more and more. And the enemies of God are just going to keep coming against him. And this is consequence. Uh, this is the, the effects of their refusal to listen to God's word. Uh, the worst consequence of not listening to God's word is not just the physical onslaught of a neighboring militia. The worst is what happens in verse 9 and following. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I can't read. And you can see that the meaning of truth is being closed up to them because they have refused to heed it, to listen to it. Then the Lord said, because... This people draw near with their words. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's even poetic. It says, uh, in the, the, this people draw near with their mouth, with their lips. They give me glory. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelously. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of the, the, their discerning men will be concealed. Truth is going to be taken away from these people because they continue to worship with their lips. They continue to worship with their mouth. They continue to posture in a position of reverence. But all it is is tradition learned by rote. It's lip service. They're saying the right thing. They're doing the right thing externally. And they can keep repeating the same phrases. They know what they're supposed to say. They know how they're supposed to carry it out. And that becomes binding on the conscience. And it's not rooted in a reverence for God. That's the quote. Go back to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus said those words, After quoting that in Mark 7, verses 6 and 7, that's the quote from Isaiah 29, 13. Jesus then comments, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. John MacArthur mentioned the an article by uh, a Jew who was a Hasidic Jew, Orthodox Jewish teacher named Gutemann Locks. And this teacher, this rabbi, said, accepting Jesus as Messiah would mean the destruction of the Jewish people, for Jesus was opposed to Jewish teaching. And 
That's true. He was opposed to Jewish teaching. Sadly, for the Jews, so were the Jewish writers who wrote the Old Testament scriptures. So was God. Christ, God, and all the authors of the Old Testament are united in their opposition to Jewish teaching. And so Jesus, who was opposed to the Jewish teaching, has to do nothing more than quote Isaiah to show that Isaiah was opposed to the Jewish teaching. This is a showdown between true religion, the worship of the living God, and man-made religion. Even, especially the most subtle form, a man-made religion that has the appearance of standing on the word of God. Because now what has to happen is there has to be a very subtle introduction of human traditions into divine revelation. What those, the meaning of this divine revelation means, or how we practice it, or how we carry it out. It has to be a human addition. And so in verse 8, he points out that by neglecting the command of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Spurgeon said this, religion based on human authority, it's worthless. We must worship the true God in the way of his own appointing, or we do not worship him at all. Doctrines and ordinances are only to be accepted when the divine word supports them, and they are to be accepted for that reason only. The most punctilious form of devotion is vain worship if it is regulated by man's ordinance apart from the Lord's own command. And that's where Jesus goes with this. Properly speaking, by the time we get to verse 8, that's really the end of the action sequence. In verse 9, Mark tells us, look, here's another piece of conversation that I want you to keep in mind to make sense of why that showdown was so important. And so you can even see how it comes out in the English there. He was also saying to them, so here's another another thing to consider, and this really is to to help us understand verses 1 to 8. He explains to them in this showdown, and um, it's interesting, if you, if you read Matthew 15, there, here, there's, there's an interesting difference between the way Mark tells the story and the way Matthew tells the story, and that's just the order. He takes what you see here in verses 9 to 13, he puts that in the front, and then he gets to the discussion about Isaiah 29. So this whole discussion we're about to look at with Corbin and how you would honor a father and mother, that actually starts the conversation in Matthew's story, which is much more chronological. And in this one, Mark's just pointing out, look, this is, this is what Jesus started with was building up to the point, to the conclusion. So you just need this to, to make sense of this man-made religion that he is exposing. And so let's look, look at this example. He was saying to them in verse 9, you are experts. I mean, they are highly skilled, highly adept at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. This is a scary verse. They've become experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, what's interesting is, in, in our vernacular today, we are usually very sensitive to legalism. In, the, in our church, we're appropriately sensitive to legalism. And we might look at the, the Pharisees and say, man, these guys, are, these guys are legalists. And they are. And Jesus points out, look, the, 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 the problem isn't just that they've, they've got additions to the word of God. It's actually, how, how would you know you're a legalist? When you're actually neglecting the commandment of God. 
So paying attention to the commandment of God is not legalism. That's the problem, is they're not paying attention to the commandment of God. But you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And so this is a man-made religion that has started to kind of turn down the dimmer switch on divine commands, turn up the dimmer switch on human traditions, and it's just kind of like a little sleight of hand. They just start to shift the focus. And so in verse 9, he's pointing out, look, you just keep setting it aside in order to keep a, your tradition. In verse 8, it's the tradition of men. Now in verse 9, it's your tradition. And then he points out a command. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. This is honoring your father and mother. He's talking about the incorrigible child who's supposed to be put to to death, who is now uh, speaking evil, slandering a parent. And so that's not to be tolerated in the nation. And there's two commands right there. Verse 11. But you say... So you see what happens here. It's just, this is a very formulaic. Jesus did this quite often, most notably in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And now here he's actually flipping the order. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what God's word says. This is what Moses wrote. But you say, verse 11, now here's the Jewish interpretation. If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And let's pause right there for a second. That's a mouthful. What's Jesus pointing out here? He's pointing out something that's very traditional. It's something that would have been common knowledge. And um, he's, he's mentioning this to the Pharisees. They know exactly what he's talking about. These scribes and Pharisees are guilty of this practice. Now, uh, it's interesting, this word Corban, you see that in verse 11, uh, he gives a translation. It just means gift or given. So the noun would be gift. The verb would be given. This is something that's devoted. It's set aside. It's, so something that's Corban is declared to be given or um, a gift. It's given to God. So it's, no, it's off limits. And here's what would happen. You would basically set something aside by way of being consecrated. And so here's an example. Uh, Josephus was talking about uh, the Nazarite vow. And Nazarite vow means you would, you would never cut your hair. You wouldn't drink wine. And so when people dedicate themselves to God, uh, they dedicate themselves as a Corban. And he uses this very same word to describe a Nazarite. So this word could even be used of an individual. An individual could be Corban, designated for God, given to God, consecrated to God, set apart for God. It's interesting, uh, in Matthew 27, verse 6, here's what you, here's what you read. Uh, the chief priests took the pieces of silver, and the context is from Judas, the blood money that he, he got for betraying Jesus. They took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful for them to be put into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And the word Corbanon is the word temple treasury there. And this is where you, uh, money would go that's designated to the temple worship. And that's what the word is, it, that's what it means. It's interesting, this practice was, is an established practice. You can read it throughout Jewish literature, what they would do. One example that I came across was really interesting. There was a specific man in a town called Beth Horon, and a man was, was um, offering a courtyard, a piece of property, 
And it was given to another individual as a gift. And so it uses the word Corbin, and he declares it as Corbin. He's like, okay, this is set aside. You can go ahead and use it um, um, for this banquet. And by the way, my father is going to come to the banquet. And the, the guy who was getting married said, that's not Corbin if your father's going to come. He says, I'm saying that this property is designated for heaven. And so what that means is the guy who's getting married is saying, your dad can't even come to my party because it's Corbin. This becomes a conflict. It has to go before the sages. And the historical ruling was that he couldn't come. The father couldn't even come to the wedding. That's how they ruled on that Corbin. The issue with Corbin is a son might have money set aside. He might have money saved up. And all he has to do is say the word, Corbin, and it can't go to his dad. Well, you're supposed to honor your father and mother. I know, but this is bigger because it's designated for the Lord. Mm. It's interesting that um, there are some evidences. It doesn't seem like it even has to have already been given to the temple. It just has to be declared. It can actually be deferred. In other words, the son can still have the money and just defer the giving And so what that is, it's a catch clause. It's an asterisk. Honor your father and mother, asterisk. Unless you just say the word Corbin, then you don't have to. It's gross. This is just a man-made tradition. And notice in verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God. You're invalidating the word of God. You're, you're, You're annulling it. You are canceling it. You are setting it aside. You are rejecting it. You're denying its validity. It's the word for rulership. It's it's literally the word for Lord in Greek with the alpha primitive, and it's just ruining its dominion. You're just absolutely undermining the, the the word of God and its authority, and you're doing it by your traditions, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as this. We could talk about tithing mill, uh, dill and mint and cumin. We could talk about um, devouring widows' houses by requiring sacrifices to go into the temple from a widow when that very sacrifice was to provide for the widow. We could talk about all sorts of forms of religious perversion that harmed real people because of the addition of human traditions that invalidate divine commands. I was thinking about this. It's interesting how human religion, how it works, especially the forms of human religion that start with the Word of God and plausibly say that they stand on the Word of God or even read the Word of God or even teach the Word of God. It starts with initiating customs. Number one, you just have to initiate some customs, customs that become part of the practice and that becomes accepted by the community. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, all, we, we initiate customs here and there's nothing wrong with that. Then number two, passing on traditions. And even this isn't wrong in and of itself. Passing on a tradition is not, is not wrong. So long as it's clear that it's a tradition, not the word of God. But number three, and this is what we see in this story, the binding of the conscience where, these, where it crosses these traditional lines. See, this is a tradition The disciples aren't following that tradition. It's exposing their religion. They they confront Jesus on it, and they're saying, you aren't doing what's right and proper, and Jesus is exposing 
you're violating God's word because you're worshiping man. And then number four, it becomes a justification for disobedience. By the time you see what is happening in verses 9 through 13, and you think about this practice of Corban, you find a way, it's a religious way to actually disobey a very clear command of Scripture, namely honoring your father and mother, while still hanging on to the resources that you selfishly want to hang on to. And then it's just a full-blown neglect of the truth. We remember our verbs? Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God. Verse 9, setting aside the commandment of God. Verse 13, invalidating the word of God. For what? Verse 8, the tradition of men. Verse 9, your tradition. And then verse 13, your tradition which you hand down. Theologically, consider what's happening here. What's happening here? This is a microcosm. Or to be specific, it's, it's really an example of human religion that typifies all human religion fundamentally. God is replaced by man. Notice in verse 7, in the quote from Isaiah, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The teaching of man has become equivalent to the teaching of God, and it trumps the teaching of God. In verse 8, it's the commandment of God, traditions of men. Verse 9, the commandment of God, your tradition. And then verse 13, word of God, your tradition. You see the swap there? This is the heart of idolatry. Human religion always worships the creation rather than the creator. Always. Romans 1 tells us as much. Paul writes in the epistle to the Romans in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to become wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And we read that and we think, yeah, that sounds an awful lot like Psalm 50. Yeah, that sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 44. And then we look at Mark 7 and we realize, wow, that sounds an awful lot like Mark 7. God speaking clearly in his word, and it's being set aside for the word of man. Human religion exalts man rather than God by putting man in the position of authority. Man is in the position of authority because we worship men. And so we have more reverence and more fear for what man says rather than what God says. We have more fear and reverence for what people think than what God thinks. And then once we've made that switch, false religion or any human religion, those who adhere to it become like what you worship. Psalm 50 verse 21 says, you thought I was just like you. And we always start to create God in our image when we pursue human religion. In Psalm 115, 
Remember Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Why should our God be like the other gods and be equated to the other gods? They have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. Those who worship them will become like them. You become like what you worship, which is why Jeremiah can say in chapter 2, verse 5, Jeremiah says, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Remember that language? That's similar to Isaiah 29. They went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. And man, isn't that just such a rebuke to human religion? We, we, we forsake the, the word of the living God for the word of man. We pursue emptiness and we become just as empty as ourselves. There couldn't be a worse, worse consequence for our idolatry than that. And then those traditions start to push out divine commands. Think about this. This is this truth that we're looking at, and we're not going to be able to finish this passage, as I mentioned. We're going to pick up verses 14 to 23 next time. But, I mean, think about this. This truth that Jesus is teaching about the nature of human religion, and about especially as he's going to develop it for the, for the disciples next time, the, the misunderstanding of heart, the heart's corruption. Consider how important this is for our for our spiritual welfare. If we lose sight of who's God and who's not, and if we lose sight of the impurity of our own hearts, we can fall into a man-made religion, even with our Bibles in our hand. The critical element here to remember is that obedience is a heart issue. God commands heart obedience. He wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. He requires conformity to his commands, not the establishment of human ways to feel like we're actually obeying. And the fundamental corruption of human religion is that it replaces God with man as the object of worship because it replaces God with man as the giver of commandments. And it gets there by ignoring the inner man and the defilement of the heart. Instead, it focuses on the outer man, and the defilement of the flesh. And that's where Jesus is going in the second half of our story, and we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible showdown between your son and the religious leaders of a, of a false religion. Lord, I just pray that as we look at this reality that Lord, it doesn't matter what people say or what rules we've come up with or what traditional ways of practice we have designed. We, we long to be obedient to you. And Lord, if we were to be able to obey all that you had commanded, wow, what a, what a privilege that would be. Lord, we long to be devoted to you in, in purity with all that we have, with every aspect of our being, mind, heart, soul, and strength. Lord, we long, for, we long to love you with all of our mind. We, we know that if, if every thought 
that would ever course through our brains were always worthy of you and only worthy of you. That, that's not really a, a, a great thing. That's just simply what it ought to be. You're worthy of that kind of mindset. And yet, Lord, we fail. We fail with all sorts of thoughts that are not worthy of you. And Lord, we um, long for our hearts to love you with every, with every uh, inclination of our will. We want it, all of it to bend toward you. And yet, again, we, um, we see how, how uh, far we have to go. But Lord, as we look at our inclination of our heart and we long to uh, obey all of your commands about reverence and about humility and about anxiety and fear and about loving the brethren and about trembling at your word. We thank you that you have given us such clear commands because those commands that constrain our heart and those commands that constrain our mind are life for us. They are protection for us. They're protection for us from going down um, practices and patterns of living that would actually, could actually succeed in the flesh. But Lord, to obey your commands, we would require living by the power of your Spirit. And so Lord, just thank you for the brilliance of giving us such great and glorious commands. Thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Thank you for this true religion that can only be worked out from the, out, from the inside out. And guard us from that subtle temptation to go toward a religion that would be outside in especially if we get weary of commands, especially if we see more and more sin and we get exhausted at how sinful we are, Lord, do not ever let us create an easier religion. Do not ever let us go easy on our conscience or on our soul by finding an easier way out. Um, protect us from that, Lord, because the outcome doesn't matter. We, we, just, we want you to be glorified. We want you to be glorified with with our hearts, with who we are, where no one would know but you. That's our desire, Lord. Thank you for this incredible showdown between Christ and the Pharisees and teach us true religion. Teach us what what it truly means to to worship you in spirit and truth. And uh, we want to just close with this song, Lord. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified by our singing. Lord, what's really, what pleases you is not the loudness or the pitch or the tone, it's the heart. And so I pray that this song right here now as your people uh, would be the overflow of brokenness, the overflow of faith, the overflow of hearts that are bowed low under your word, clinging not to the traditions of men, but to your commandments, and that you'd be pleased. In your name we pray. Amen.